We're in a series titled Comeback Kids, the story of uh, Israel's return from the Babylonian exile. And this series is covering about a 110-year period in Israel's history, from 538 B.C. to 430 B.C. And there are five books of the Bible that speak into this time period in Israel's history. Two historical books, Ezra and Nehemiah, and three prophetic books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And God sent those three prophets to his people during this time period to encourage them uh, to make a full return back to the promised land and back to true worship of God. Three things you can do to get the most out of the series. Number one, listen to all the sermons. If you can't be here in person, which I do encourage, uh, then listen online at clearwater.church. Uh, secondly, be reading those five books of the Bible, and out online you can find a reading plan that Pastor uh, James has put together, and so if you read in advance of Sunday, you'll get more out of it. And thirdly, I'd love it if you would be talking about the sermon with other people, uh, because that will go, it'll go deeper, the truths will go deeper into your own heart, and then you spread the word. So it's awesome. And then, of course, finally, I would love it if you would be inviting people to church. We all know people who need to be in church. Clearwater Church is a great place to come and hear about God and worship with his people. Last week, last week we talked about the principle of restorative discipline. And we answered the question, why were the people of God in exile anyways? Why did God kick his people out of the promised land and, and, and send them to Babylon? And the answer is because the people had become entangled in sin and they had not responded to God's lesser discipline. So he brought down the big boom and he kicks them out of the promised land to get their attention. And God still does that in the lives of his people now. If we get entangled in sin, God in his love will discipline us in order to open our eyes to how our sin is harming us and set us free. A restorative discipline of God is a beautiful thing. It's not pleasant when you're under it, but it does result in good for our soul. So that's, that was last week. This week we're going to be uh, talking about the fact that God keeps his promises. What a glorious truth that we need to revel in, the promise-keeping God. God keeps his promises. And we're going to see this truth revealed uh, in the first story of Israel's return from exile. So the Israelites returned to the promised land in three waves over the course of multiple decades. And the first wave came in 538 B.C. under the leadership of Zerubbabel. That's what we will be talking about today. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Ezra. Chapter 1, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So we're about 40% of the way into your Bible. This is Old Testament. Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, 
May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, every one whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Now this is amazing. This is a pagan king who says not only, hey Jews, you may go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, but I actually want you to go and I am encouraging the people uh, who you live around who don't go back to to actually fund the mission. I want them to give you all kinds of gold and silver and beasts and costly wares to fund this return. And what we read immediately following the verses I read is that uh, uh, Cyrus actually hands back to the Jewish people all of the gold and silver utensils that had been pillaged by the Babylonians when they conquered Jerusalem. He says, here you go, take these back and put them in the temple you rebuild. And so why would a pagan king uh, make such a declaration? Well, because God stirred up his spirit. God put the ideas in his mind, made them seem like good ideas, moved Cyrus to do this. And why would God do it? That the word of the Lord by the house of Jer- mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Because God was going to keep a promise that he had made to his people 70 years earlier by his, uh, through his prophet Jeremiah. God keeps his promises. It doesn't matter that 70 years have gone by. It doesn't matter if thousands of years have, been, have gone by. God doesn't forget a promise. He lets no word of his fall on the ground and be lost. He keeps his promises, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, some history. I find history fascinating. So let me, hopefully I can tell it in a way that fascinates you. 605 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, the dominant world power were the Assyrians. The terror of the world. The Assyrians, were they ruled through intimidation. They were, they were just uh, terribly violent people. They marched into Israel in 605 B.C. and they conquered 10 of the 12 tribes, the 10 northern tribes of Israel. Uh, they conquered those 10 tribes and they hauled the Jewish people off into exile. We call them the lost tribes of Israel because we really don't know what happened to those Jewish people. But God did not let, let the Assyrians conquer the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And Jerusalem, the capital, is in the property or the, uh, the inheritance of Judah. God stops the Assyrians. They're unable to conquer Judah and Benjamin. But about 30 years later, Assyria has been conquered by Babylon. The Babylonians are now the dominant world power. And in 586, because the people of God down in the south, they did not repent. They continued to persist in their wickedness. Uh, 
those two southern tribes were not as bad as the northern tribes, but they became, over the next 30 years, they kept declining spiritually, and finally God allowed the Babylonians to come. So in 586, the Babylonians come, conquer Jerusalem, and haul off the, uh, the people of Judah and Benjamin into exile, take them back to Babylon. Not every single Jew was hauled off into exile, but certainly all of the nobility, all of the wealthy and powerful, all of the educated, all the tradesmen, the best and the brightest, were grabbed and taken back to Babylon. And then the Assyrians and the Babylonians both had a policy of bringing non-Jews back into the land. And so what happened is, over the next 70 years, or actually it was 50, over the next 50 years, uh, you, have all, you, you have this intermixing of the Jews who were left behind and all these Gentiles who, who had moved back into the land. And so when the, when the returnees from Babylon come back, the Jews have, who have remained are no longer kind of really Jews. They've been, uh, there's ethnic mixing and there's been a massive syncretization of kind of the worship of, the, of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with all these other uh, pagan gods, and it's just become this mishmash that's not at all pleasing to the Lord. And we'll see that, the, the conflict between the returnees and those who have stayed, uh, we'll see that play out in weeks to come. So about, about 50 years of exile in Babylon. So for 50 years, now one of the things that Jeremiah the prophet told the people is when you go into exile, go ahead and put roots down. And because uh, you're going to be there for a while, and so plan to, you know, do business there and build houses there and get married there and seek to bless the city to which you go. And so over the course of 50 years, the, the exiles had really made a home in Babylon. But the faithful Jew who believed the, the word of God that had come through Jeremiah, they clung to the promise of God that, that this exile was not permanent, that there was going to come a day when he would return a remnant of the Jews back to Jerusalem. And in fact, Jeremiah said it would come after 70 years of Babylonian uh, power. And so the faithful Jew, the believing Jew, uh, kept the hope alive and told their children and their grandchildren, you're going to have an opportunity to go back. And when that time comes, you want to be ready spiritually, and you want your life to be lined up so that you can go back. And, and they, were, they were very keen to preserve the, uh, the spiritual integrity and, and the ethnic integrity of the people. And so there, there were, amongst the exiles, faithful Jews who were ready to go when God um, uh, spoke through Cyrus. In chapter 2 of Ezra, we, we learn who went back. And it's very interesting. Not all of the Jews went back. A little under 50,000. And now we're told in Ezra, it's everyone who, with whom whom's God's spirit stirred up returned. But a lot of Jews remained in Babylon. And that's a question for you to ponder. <laughs> Was it appropriate for a Jewish person to remain in captivity? when they had an opportunity to go back and reestablish the true worship of the Lord? Well, uh, well we, we hear about, you know, later we hear about Esther uh, and Mordecai. We hear about Nehemiah. We hear about Ezra. So there were some really good godly people who had remained in 
uh, in the land. It's just very interesting to me. But a little, uh, about, about 50,000 Jews returned. And uh, there were three leaders associated with this first return. Uh, leader A is Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. So uh, a, descendant of the, a descendant of David. But all we hear about Sheshbazar is that he's the guy Cyrus entrusts the temple uh, treasuries to and says, bring them back to the temple. The, the dominant leader that we hear about is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel seems to be the political kind of governor of the Jews on that return. And then the primary religious leader is, is Joshua, uh, the main priest. But we usually talk about the first return in 538 BC as being led by Zerubbabel. We don't know much. Actually, we don't really know anything about the actual journey home. Uh, we, the story picks up once they're back in the land and their uh, efforts to reestablish the sacrificial system and their attempts to rebuild the, uh, the temple, which they lay the foundation pretty quickly and then they stall out. And so next week, Pastor James is going to be talking about uh, kind of that, those early years and how God has to send the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to the people to uh, refocus their attention on their core spiritual mission because they've drifted off into just, you know, taking care of normal business in, in life. And boy, that happens to all of us, doesn't it? So back... So we're going to, you know, so there's, there's a lot more of the story to come. But today I want us to zero in on, on uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, this, um, this um, God as the promise keeper. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, let's zero in. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, we know a little bit about the transition of power from Babylon to the Persians. And because the Bible talks about this. Um, one of the... Thank you. We are now defeating the wind. Okay. The Bible tells us a little bit about this. Um, the last king of the Babylonians was Belshazzar. Belshazzar was a partier. He was a party king. And you wanted to be part of his court because he was very lavish. And, but he, he was also a foolish ruler. Well, he's throwing a big party one night for his buddies. And he says, bring out those goblets from the Jewish temple. I want us to be drinking our wine out of these gold and silver pretty, pretty goblets. And so they do. And they're partying. They're drinking from God's sacred uh, vessels. And on the wall, the, is this hand just begins to write on the wall in giant letters, meeny, meeny, tekelafarsin. Everybody in the party's freaked out. What the heck is this? And so they call for Daniel the seer. What is going on? And this is Daniel from Daniel in the lion's den. And he's an old man now. And Daniel comes and he looks and God gives him insight. And he says, well, Belshazzar, 
here's what's happening. God has weighed you in his scales and found you wanting. And this very night, the kingdom will be taken from you. As Daniel's speaking, the media, uh, Medes and the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians have actually, at that moment, they've, uh, they have gotten into Babylon, and they, it's a pretty bloodless revolution. They take over Babylon. And all of a sudden, there was the Assyrians were the dominant power, then the Babylonians were the dominant power for 70 years, by the way, from the time that Joshua made, I'm sorry, from the time that Jeremiah made his proclamation in Jeremiah chapter 25, that the Babylonians would be, uh, or that the Jews would be exiles, or that Babylon would be in power for 70 years until 538, 70 years. Quite interesting. But anyways, all of a sudden, the Babylonian Empire is just handed over to the Persians, the Medo-Persians. The Bible just refers to Cyrus as the king of Persia. And now the Persians are by far and away the dominant world power, which is why Cyrus says, you know, God has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He was, I mean, this was an, a world empire. Cyrus is the most powerful king on earth. And it all happened just, just like that overnight. And why? It's because God is sovereign and he wanted to fulfill a promise. And so he hands, and in, in, in that promise, Babylon would be disciplined for the role they played in hauling off the Jews into exile, and the kingdom would be given to another. So in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, oh, this is also interesting. Um, the, this policy that Cyrus enacted did not apply uniquely to the Jewish people. This was a, a policy that he applied to all peoples the Babylonians had conquered and hauled off into exile. He said everyone can return to his ancestral lands and, re, and reestablish their ancestral worship. Uh, Cyrus uh, was a polytheist, believed there are many gods, and he wanted as many gods happy with him as possible. But we know from history that he continued to worship Marduk, the god of the, of the Persians. But he says a few chapters later, by the way, when the temple gets rebuilt, make sure you say prayers and, and make offerings on behalf of myself and my, and my sons, right? In other words, bless my kingdom. And I'm sure he was saying that uh, to all of the peoples returning to their homes and reestablishing their worship. So this was, a, this was a policy that I'm sure the, the, that Cyrus thought was going to win a lot of goodwill for his new, his ruler, his rule, and his new empire. But, the God, but God was working in and through all of that to fulfill a promise. And that's the big idea. So I want to turn now and just talk about some principles of our promise-keeping God. Number one, God has made you promises, and they can be found in the Bible. God has made you promises. Own that truth. And they can be found in the Bible. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. God speaks to humans, and the primary pattern is he speaks to us through his prophets. So a human stands up and says, thus says the Lord, and we have a choice to believe 
Is God actually speaking through that person or not? But the Bible says that, yes, God speaks to us through his prophets. And the good news is what those actual true prophets, God-ordained prophets said, has been recorded for us in the Bible. It's been written down. And it's been preserved so that we can know what God has said to us. One of the primary reasons I believe that the Bible is the Word of God and is accurate so that I can trust it is because I believe that God cares enough about us to speak to us. And you can, you can, better, you can believe that if God takes the time to speak to us, He's going to bend His mighty power to preserve His Word so that we have it with us today, accurate, so that we too can find out what He has promised us and believe it. Now, the final prophets are the apostles. The final word of God is Jesus Christ. All the promises of God are yes in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.20. And the apostles, all they, what the apostles do is they say, let, let me, they, they're basically, God, they are God's appointed uh, representatives to explain to us what life, the meaning and purpose of Christ's coming is for us. But we talk about the canon being closed. There are no modern-day prophets. God has made, he has said his final word in Jesus Christ. The apostles have explained it, the meaning and significance to us, and that's it. Now we go to the word, and we read about the promises of God. But God has made you promises. They can be found in the Bible. And so my question to you is, don't you want to know what God has said to you? Don't you want to know what he's promised you? The Bible talks about these as great and glorious promises, don't leave any great and glorious promise on the shelf. You, you have a right and a privilege to know the promises of God. He's written them down because he wants you to know them. Learn them and then apply them to your life. It will make a huge, huge difference. God has made you promises and they can be found in the Bible. Let's be reading the Bible. Let's be in Bible studies. Let's be listening to sermons. If you don't like reading, listen to the Bible read to you on your phone. Second principle, every promise God has made you will be fulfilled. I think that's one of the big points of our story today, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. You know, because God keeps his promises, he stirs up the, the heart of the spirit of Cyrus. God keeps his promises. We humans, we make promises, then the situation on the ground changes and we say, ah, it's not convenient for me to do what I said I was going to do. That's never the case with God. God makes promises with full knowledge of what's to come. The situation on the ground never changes for God and thus cause him to reconsider. No, he makes a promise. He will fulfill his promises. That's part of his character. So number one, he is faithful to his word, so he fulfills his promise. And secondly, he has all power, right? God is in charge of, he has power over nature. He has power over nations. He even has power over the human heart. Proverbs 21 says, the heart of the king is like a river of water and God turns it wherever he wills. God makes you a promise. He has the power to keep his promise and he has the will to keep his promise. So you can take to the bank the promises of God. Third principle, many of God's promises require a faith response to activate. This is important. So God stirs up the, the spirit of Cyrus to say, Jews, you may return. I want you to return. 
I'm telling people to fund your return. Here are the goblets to the, you know, the, the temple. Go for it. But it still required the Jews to go, right? That promise of God wouldn't be fulfilled unless there were some willing people who said, count me in, I'm going to go and back to Jerusalem and, and rebuild the temple. And so there are many promises of God that we only get to enjoy when we uh, act upon them. So let me just hit a few of these by way of showing this in action. James chapter 1 verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. God promises to give you wisdom, but you must ask. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in in all his ways. God says, I promise to give you wisdom if you ask in faith. But if you don't ask or you don't ask in faith, you don't get it. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God promises to give us rest, his rest. Rest for our souls. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. But we have to come to him. We have to take our, his yoke upon us. We have to learn from him. So we have a role to play, right? There's a promise, and then there's a premise. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You want to be forgiven your sin? You want to be cleansed from all unrighteousness? That is a promise God makes to you. I'll do it. I'm faithful. I'm just. But you have to confess your sins. Only when you confess your sins will I then forgive and cleanse. John chapter 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is incredible. God, the creator of the universe, the one who knitted your body together, you live because he chooses to let you live. In him we live and move and have our very being. That creator of the universe says, I will actually adopt you as my child, claim you as my own, become your heavenly father. That is, a, that is an offer. That is a promise made to all people. And it doesn't say if you're good enough. So it doesn't matter how far or for how long you have run for God. It doesn't matter what you have done. If you believe and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, God will give you the right to become his child. The Bible is full of promises that are predicated upon a faith response. This can be in your life, this blessing can be yours, but you must respond to God in faith. And so I'm concerned. I'm concerned for all of the non-Christians who are leaving so many of the promises of God. They're leaving all the promises of God, for the most part, on the table. And I'm, and I'm concerned for the Christian 
who leaves promises of God on the table unclaimed. How sad. Are there promises that you know God has made you and that you're leaving on the table because you're not responding in faith? You're missing out. Fourth promise, or fourth principle, most of God's promises apply only to Christians. Okay, so if you're not a believer or you're talking to your unbelieving relative and friend, you can't, you can't quote them a promise of God and, and act like that's for them because it's probably not for them. Most of the promises of God apply only to the Christian. Now, there are some promises that apply to all people. Uh, I just read one, right? To as many as receive him, who believe on his name, right? So there's the promise of you can be saved. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So there are promises God makes to all people. But then there are a whole lot of other promises that only apply to you if you are a Christian, once you choose to be a follower of Jesus. So let me read some of these. This is just a smattering. This is a promise that, uh, to the effect that God is always with the Christian. And so we don't need to fear. Hebrews 13.5, He has said... I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Here's one about God's control. The Lord is at hand. This is in Philippians 4, 5. And I would underline, The Lord is at hand. God's right here. If you're a Christian, God is with you. Right next to you. He's at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything. Why? Because God's right here with you. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The Lord is at hand. Talk to Him. Tell Him what's going on, what's going on in your life and in your heart. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Romans eight twenty eight. This is the promise that God is good to his people and he works all things out for good. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, it doesn't say that we know that for all people, it specifies. For those who love God, all things work together for good. doesn't mean that all things are good. God, evil happens to us. We do evil and evil is done to us. And those things are not good, but God weaves those bad things into a beautiful, good tapestry in our lives, and it's incredible, and that would not happen apart from the goodness of God and the power of God at work in our life. And by faith, we believe it, and it changes our perspective on what's happening to us. For those who are called according to His purpose. So that's a verse that specifies <laughs> the recipients of this promise on both ends, for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. Here's one about how God is always watching. This actually, this is my favorite Bible verse. 
as a young man, I came across this and I thought, I love this verse. Second Chronicles chapter 12. What? Nope, 16. 2 Chronicles, you'd think I'd know my favorite verse. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, seeking to uphold those whose hearts are completely his. I love that. That captured my imagination. That God is his, he's just on the search for people whose hearts are completely his so that he can be there to uphold them. And I love that. What a truth. But it's for those whose heart is blameless toward him, this translation. Here's one. God is, this is about how God is always victorious. And so the, for the, the Christian, for the Christian, the end is victory. And this is the promise of Jesus. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's talking to us today if we are his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Jesus has made us this promise. I've, I'm not with you right now in the body. That's because I've gone to prepare a place for you. But you can believe that I'm going to come back. Because what am I doing? I'm preparing a place for you because I want to be with you. And I'm going to come back and get you. And so when I come back and get you, we're going to go together to that wonderful place that I've been preparing for you. And, you know, the Bible says, to, to me, this, this verse is, is very equivalent to the Christian as the promise of, of God through Jeremiah to his people in exile. Hey, someday you're going to get it to return to Jerusalem and reestablish true worship. We are ex- the Bible says that the Christian is, is a sojourner on earth. We are exiles. This is not our home. Where's our true citizenship in heaven? Right? And so earth is not our real home. Our real home, our, our real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ returns, then the real us will be revealed. And so we're in exile. And uh, we're like those Jews who, before Cyrus made the big declaration, were clinging to the promise, but living in exile. And we are too. And so we cling to this promise that, yeah, it's been 2,000 years, but, but a day is as a thousand years to the Lord, and he is not slow in fulfilling his promise. And, and right now he's giving people an opportunity to repent and get saved, but there is coming a day when it will be today. And I will return, and I will get you and take you home. And so we need to be the faithful people of God who are clinging to that promise and living out of that promise. Why does God make us promises and not fulfill them instantaneously because he call, he's calling us into a life of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is, is, this, is this whole chapter talking about people who they lived a life believing in the promises of God and they died before the promise was fulfilled. They died. Some of them died terrible martyr deaths having never you know, experienced the fulfillment of the promises of God. But they went to their death with faith believing that God would someday make 
good on his promises. And the Bible lifts them up and says, these are examples to you. And you should, you better be, be absolutely sure that God will repay them. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. I'll leave you with this scripture. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You won't draw near to God if you don't believe he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And thus you can't please him because fundamentally God wants a relationship with you. He wants you to seek him. And he knows you won't do that unless you believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And that takes faith. That's why the righteous will live by faith, says the prophet Habakkuk. Right? We live, the Christian life is a life of faith. It's a life of believing that even though I can't see it, it's true. And that's one of the reasons we are, we are so dependent on the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit gives us faith. You know, the, apostle, uh, yeah, the disciples of Jesus Christ once asked him, would you please increase our faith? I think that's an appropriate prayer. God, increase my faith so that I would believe more deeply, more, uh, more fully the promises that you have made for me. And I think God will answer that prayer. He'll be happy to answer that prayer because God loves uh, making promises and fulfilling those promises, and then, uh, and, and then seeing the, the the big smiles on the peop- on the heart on the faces of the people of God when they're like, "Yay! I put my life into this, and it paid off." Praise God! He 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 was faithful to His word. If you don't believe that God is a promise keeping God, you're going to live a pathetic Christian life. You won't be victorious. You, you won't go from faith to faith and glory to glory. Your, your, your Christian life is going to look like everybody else's life because it's not a, a life that's being uh, transformed by, by the power of God at work in your life. It, you, you ha- that comes about by faith in the promises of God and basing your life on it. <sighs> okay, there we are. Now it's time for you to respond to these, this truth. So why don't you close your eyes, quietness of your own heart. I read a number of incredibly, incredible promises. And maybe one of these promises has grabbed you. And God is challenging you to believe it. If you are not yet a Christian, I read you a promise. I, I will give you the right to become my child if you will receive and believe in my son Jesus. Repent of your sins and put your faith in God's Son and become His child. So what promise is God saying to you, I want you to believe this. I want you to own it. I want this promise to begin to animate your life. I want you to live out of it. By faith, embrace that. And just speak to the Lord about that now. Thank you, God, for caring enough about us to make promises to us 
they can be found in your word. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.